This is the official HITS training and consulting podcast. We are America's law enforcement canine training resource. We're raising the training bar for police dogs everywhere by discussing the intricate details of the training techniques used by the experts. HITS Radio is merging the training world with the real world. You've been there. We've been there, too. Welcome to HITS Radio. I'm your host, Jeff Meyer. I'm coming to you again this year from uh, Reno, and I'm out here at the Western States Police Canine Association Seminar. I come to you uh, every year at least once or twice while I'm out here, and I grab some of the instructors. Uh, This seminar is a pretty fun seminar. They do some classroom, and then we go out in the field. So you do a little bit of classroom, and everybody then has their dogs. So it's a little bit different than our HITS format, where it's all classroom and no working dogs. This one's a little bit smaller, so they mani- they can manage the amount of working dogs they have, and then we go out into different venues, and they all they have instructors from um, quite a few different places, including the U.S. and Canada. All of us that are instructors, we set up our own seminars or uh, own stations, and then we uh, come up with different uh, ideas for to show the handlers here just some different tactics, maybe some ways to control their dogs, all different things, including both for patrol and different types of detection dogs. So one of the instructors that is here that I've not had on my podcast before, but has been around for a very long time and pretty well known is Steve White. So I grabbed Steve tonight and uh, we're sitting here. We're going to talk a little bit about Steve's background, what he's got going on these days. And then also we'll talk about some of the uh, scenarios that he set up the last few days and some of the things he saw through the dogs and the teams that came through. So with that, Steve, welcome. And I'm I'm glad to, to have you and thanks for taking the time. Absolute pleasure, Jeff. It's a real joy to be here with you. Excellent. So, can you uh, just kind of go over your background and uh, you know talk about you know from how you got into all this and how you ended up sitting right here? Well, just under a year ago, I retired from the Seattle Police Department. Um, I finished up my career there as the training supervisor for the Seattle Police Canine Unit. Um, I had been a cop of one flavor or, or another since 1975 when I started uh, out in the uh, Army as an MP. Uh, got lucky enough to get dog school right then and there. And then for the next 40, almost 47 years, I was in and out of canine for most of my career. You know, most of my career was in canine assignments. And I had the, the blessing of doing a uh, few other really fun things. Always loved patrol, too. Sure. So how many years total were you at Seattle? Uh, Seattle was 34 years. Yeah. And then uh, 42 years in our state retirement system. Oh, wow. And then uh, four years of military police before that. So um, we'll talk real quick about that, just because you know all, all my listeners are, are cops or uh, at least interested in what we do. Um, you know, let's talk about Seattle. You you invested a huge chunk of your life, as I have with my agency. Um, a lot of changes. Um, mm-hmm. Probably, probably, I'm going to say at this period of our lives, probably not great changes, but I'm sure there were some good and bad. So, you know, what what are your thoughts? You know, overall looking back now. As, and, and not to throw Seattle under bus, but just, you know, what, what was the agency like when you started and what, how did it end up when you left? Uh, well, you know, I got to preface this that um, I fell in love with Seattle when I first came out to visit. My grandparents had just moved there in 1964, and, tail end of 64, and I, moved, I, I went out there to visit them the summer of 65. At the time, I was living in New York City with my mom. Um, back who was a single mom back in the days before Murphy Brown made it hip. And um, I fell in love with Seattle that very first summer. I mean, like summer in Seattle is the best in the country. Yeah. Both weeks. And it's, it's an amazing place. It's, you know, it's beautiful. It's lush. It's green. The, um, you know, the population has a reputation for being friendly uh, they also have a reputation for you really got to work hard to develop a deep relationship with them. It's an interesting thing. There's a phenomenon called the Seattle freeze. You can look it up for yourself, but they are genuinely friendly people. And it was something I was really attracted to. And so as soon as I graduated high school at the age of 17, I moved out there. Okay. Um, and, um, it was always a city that was working hard to be progressive. Sure. And I think that inclination accelerated in the 1980s. And the way it accelerated, um, I think, 
when you embrace something for the sake of embracing that thing and not really looking yeah. at the the effects you want to get yeah um you you start to focus so much on the thing that you're trying to do you don't pay attention to the side effects sure and the side effects are what got a hold of seattle and so i would say that i i transferred to seattle from the kitsap county sheriff's office in 1987 and at that time i th- i think the the spiral around the drain was already starting. Seattle has been circling the drain like that. Um, I know there will be people who will be upset to hear me say that. <laughs> they're still there, but um, sure. you know, it is not, there, there was a time when I would recommend people come visit Seattle. It's safe, it's clean, yeah. it's friendly, no problem. Um, I can't say that in good conscience anymore, sure. and it breaks my heart. Well, I, I understand you. I feel the same way about my city, and there's a lot of cities that are are going through whatever we want to call it. But mm-hmm. I, so I definitely understand that. The department changed a lot too, I imagine. So yeah, um, I had uh, Nick Metz on here about probably spent about two years ago when we talked about. Uh, I, I brought him on to talk about Chief's perspective of canine mm-hmm. but of course we did talk about his time there when he was in seattle mm-hmm. and he said that i remember he, he mentioned that you know he nothing but fondness and respect for the agency but i know he used something to the the effect of that it was it it's was heartbreaking a, and it was and, and what i think he said it was just it was a tough place to you know the, the citizens were kind of hard to always connect with and, and you're always at, trying to well you know it, it it's funny in some ways yes in some ways, no. You know, Nick was the assistant chief that brought me back to K-9 for my second trip in K-9. I had three trips into, into K-9 in Seattle there, and he was brought me there um, in, uh, like, I think 2005. Yeah. Uh, kind of a, for a right-the-ship moment. And and so I have a lot of respect for Nick. Nobody's perfect, you know. Yeah. We're all that. Yeah. But, but the one thing I will say for Nick, uh, Metz, is that he as a law enforcement executive, really worked hard to never lose touch with the officers. Yeah, I he, get that he 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 strove to not have that ivory tower mindset, and I say that because I think part of Seattle's problem is because is because the other side of Fifth Avenue at City Hall, they haven't done that. Yeah, there's an ivory tower mindset that isolates them and insulates them from the. Um, the effects of their decisions, yeah. the side effects in particular. And then the street cops bear a lot of the brunt of some of them. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, we could grouse about yeah. this all along. Um, but, but, but going back to like when you started with uh, Seattle, uh, did when you got there, you wanted to be a canine handler right off the bat? Yeah, that was my goal. Uh, so here, I, <laughs> I've always been working with dogs all my life. When I was in New York City before I moved to Seattle, while other kids were babysitting, I was walking other people's dogs. Yeah. So... Um, and, you know, I got this theory about where dog trainers come from, and I wanted to be a dog trainer at that point. I yeah. moved to Seattle thinking that I wanted to work in dogs. Um, and I tried going to college for a bit, and I just wasn't ready. Tried to look into the dog industry, and I actually thought, boy, particularly for the people who were showing, I just didn't like the culture. That yeah. did, that didn't appeal to me uh, of the the dog competition thing where there was mostly dog showing. I didn't yeah, even know yeah. about things like IGP or yeah. back then Schutzen and things like that. And a couple of Seattle cops took me under their wing. I was a, kind of a young guy who just turning 18, didn't know what he was doing, needed some guidance. And the sergeant of the canine unit at that time, Gary Berman, took me under his wing as a surrogate father. Sure. Uh, Larry Franklin, who was the training master at the time, he mentored me. Tim Teakin, who was the, Larry's successor as the training master, he mentored me. He and those guys and a couple of other ones said, you know, four years in, in the military would be good for you. You could be an MP yeah. and see whether you like this law enforcement thing and want to do it. Because I saw what they were doing with dogs and I said, I, that, yeah. that, that appeals to me. Yeah. So I go into the MP school. I get through, I get a guarantee for MP school and an MP school. They ask for volunteers for get for dog school. I got lucky. I got nice. it. Yeah. And, um, once I finished dog school with all the ups and downs that entails, I found out that, holy cow, I don't only just love this job because I get to work with this dog. I actually like serving the public 
as a peace yeah. officer, as a yeah. law enforcement officer, trying to maintain the peace. That for me was like, yeah, it was like, wow, what a double win. Yeah. And I still love it. Oh, yeah. I still to this day love the service aspect of law sure. enforcement. So you get on with Seattle and then uh, you had some experience. You knew these guys already. So it probably helped when you got a. When you you know, hired I didn't Seattle. get hired by Seattle right away. I got out. It was a very competitive market for sure. law enforcement jobs in the in the late 90s, yeah. early 80s. And I went to work for a small department, Mercer Island, across uh, across a bridge from Seattle yeah. in Lake Washington. Spent a couple years there. Then I went to work for the Kitsap County Sheriff's Office on the other side of Puget Sound. Um, and just by the luck of the draw, they were looking for somebody to take over a dog. It was uh, the handler was transferring out yeah and uh i had dog experience and they said you could probably be up to speed faster than anybody else so i got the dog and i had a great patrol dog career there and i loved it uh but in my heart i every piece of me just wanted to go work for seattle see and if it, I could do at the that. time when you were at that agency did you, were you able to go train with seattle and yeah still yeah they they released me to go over to train and um you know I was a training geek and you know, and I got sure. this, like I said, I got this theory about where things are. I was a dog person and I think a lot of us, and I'm gonna say us, I'm gonna include myself in this, maybe we're dog people but because we're not so much people people. There you go. Yeah. And, <laughs> and then then you got the control people. Yeah. You know, those are the ones that Dr. Phil say they have control issues yeah. and things like that. Where that intersection of those two groups are, those are the dog trainers. They're yeah. the ones who go, oh my gosh, you mean I can, exert control over another living being and get paid for it, that's the job for me. They get in it for a while and all of a sudden they realize, oh no, I thought I was working with dogs. But when you're a civilian dog trainer, all the work is at the loop end of the leash. The clip end's easy. And with police dog trainer too. (laughs) No. We didn't see any of that over this past week down here at WSPCA, did we? Yeah, we'll get to that. Oh, boy, howdy, will we? (laughs) So so, uh, you get over to Seattle, and then how long were you on the road before you were able to get to Seattle? Um, So I got over there. um, They granted me exception to let me go on the quarry list. Our quarry program in Seattle is unique. You'll spend five to ten years coming out once a month to play bad guy and Uh run tracks Catch yeah. dogs, help clean kennels, deal with veterinary stuff, start learning and doing some of your academics and getting some of the, the skills in that way before you ever get a dog. Sure. And um, they, so they put me on the quarry list right away, and I was able to quarry. Um, and I, let's see. I went there in the fall of 87, and in early 91, they brought me in because they needed somebody to assist with training. So Tim Teakin brought me in as an assistant trainer. So I handled narc dog part-time and I helped with the patrol dog training the rest of my time. Oh, okay. So I split myself between those two tasks yeah. for a while. So, and then that, that's kind of trial by fire right off the bat. You're in there yeah. and then you're, oh, yeah. you're and, one of the unit trainers. And right in a job that will, that some people said I didn't earn. Yeah. yeah I mean, you know, I, I mean, they, they, it was, Tim brought me in based on his knowledge of, my philosophical inclinations about sure. how important training was to police police yeah. dog work, uh, and he wanted to build a training culture, and he thought I could help with that. Um, and s- some people were comfortable with it, some weren't. I, you know, and like I said, maybe my people skills aren't the best in the world because I'm a dog yeah. person. But hey, so then over the course of you know more than thirty years, you're you do you. I know you said you had a few other assignments, but. Just in the broad scheme of things, if you think of you know that, those first you know months, maybe first year that you were there from your very first assignment, how did the did the program grow? Did it you know I'm sure it had some ups and downs, but um, did it did what was like like what was the peak time there as far as numbers of dogs and what, I mean, when you look back, what's your fondest memories of of how things were in Seattle at the time? Well. Um, you know, I think one of the things I'm I'm proudest of is um, back in the in the early '90s to mid '90s, there was a time it appeared uh, that uh, some people in the community in the the law enforcement canine community called the Canine Wars, in which the ACLU was actively yep. working to curtail the use of police canines, uh, and they had a model, a pattern of going into a state, 
finding the largest agency in that state because they had the largest potential yeah. pool of plaintiffs starting uh, exploratory public disclosure requests, then exploratory lawsuits that would get discovery, then they would file their class action suit. Los Angeles Police Department was ahead of us a, a, by about a year, year and a half on the timeline of that, and then it started in Seattle. Um, one of the things I did with Seattle when I went there is we started, we used to keep our logs in a bound ledger log book. Uh-huh. So a hard hardback ledger book, yeah. handwritten notes. And Tim and I both felt like it's too hard to get information out of there to, to help guide our training. Sure. The mindset that people have about dog logs, about training records, is that they are there because you need them for court. Yeah. You need them for court because the court needs to know that you're doing due diligence, that you yeah. are able, you have trained yourself to do what you say you're going to yeah. do. But the reality is, is the true due diligence is something that we should do because it's in us. And we, you have this powerful tool in training records to help you guide your training. You can look at it retrospectively and you can see where something started to go awry. And like, you don't realize it's a problem, but if you look a couple of weeks back, you go, oh, that's where it started. Yeah. And only if your records are good and only if the information is accessible. So what we did is we created a log sheet that handlers would fill out with one and two letter codes. And then yeah. they would submit them to me and then I would hand enter them into a flat file spreadsheet in a program called Microsoft Works, yeah. which is an old sure. little office old, suite yeah. that had scaled down versions of my, what is now Microsoft Office. Yeah, yeah. And, um, but it saved us. We didn't realize at the time we did it, but when the, the lawsuit with the ACLU hit Seattle, we were able to bring up statistics in such a way that we actually got the ACLU statistician on the stand to acknowledge that they would not want to be judged by the standard they were holding us to. Nice. And yeah. it worked out. It worked out favorably for us. And so now I was sold on the electronic record yeah, format yeah. as a way to go. Uh, and by the way, Seattle is the only agency I know of that went through one of those major class action lawsuits with the ACLU, ACLU took them all the way to trial and won, getting a verdict in wow. our favor. Um, you know, and that was a six-year process. The trial lasted seven weeks, and it took the jury 45 minutes to find for us. Nice. What was the... Um, and that was the high yeah. point. <laughs> what was the appetite of the agency and the city to even bother to defend it? Was there a time where they were like, you know what, let's just acquiesce these guys? So we had um, the the whole process started while Chief Patrick Simons was still there. He was a guy that was brought out uh, from New York City um, back in in the early seventies uh, after the Serpico era there, and he. You know, he was supporting our fighting this. Good. But when Norm Stamper came in from San Diego as our chief, everybody expected him to roll over. I'm going to give, and there are a lot of people who are not fans of Norm Stamper. They disagree with his politics. They they disagree with his the way he decided to promote people. But I'm going to give him credit for a couple of things. One is... Um, he owned his mistakes pretty darn well. And the other thing is he's the first chief I ever had that showed up at our unit, not just to watch us train, but actually run a track with us. Yeah. So he get out there. He knew what you did. And and watch it firsthand. Having come from San Diego, which had a big program, they really yeah. ran, had ramped their program up after all of the San Diego shootings yeah. Yeah. and the and creating contact and cover. Yeah. Creating, adding dogs was part of their officer safety initiative. And so they had a big inswell. And so Stamper had seen a lot of police dog yeah. work. He saw what we did. He says, I've never seen dog work like this. And I've never seen police dogs like this that are social where you can, I can pet them. Yeah. He even did one of, we used to do gag videos for our, yeah. when people had a sense of humor. Yeah. <laughs> we did gag videos for our annual banquet. And Stamper actually participated in the videos and posed with the dogs. Nice. And was, yeah. But um, what really impressed me is when the ACLU said, look, we'll settle this lawsuit. All yeah. you have to do is agree to train this way, do these things like we're having L.A. do. Yeah. Because L.A. had just lost their case or had settled it, it out. Settled. They didn't lose yeah. it. They settled yeah. it out. Yeah. They settled out like I think it was like 33 cases. It was a, yeah. big, a big number of cases they yeah. settled out. And um, 
and they got um, periodic reporting to the yeah. plaintiffs and all that stuff. Yeah. We'll settle this. You just report to us what you're doing. You do this and that. And and oh, by the way, you're only going to apply dogs on dangerous, you know, a yeah, variety, yeah, a whole we'll, variety of things. We'll, we'll tell you how you're going to happen. That eventually happened. And Stamper said, you know, as close as I can remember, I'll paraphrase it, but it basically was, it would be unseemly for the police department to allow any community organization to dictate policy. Nice. And that, to monitor performance on policy. And yeah. I, I was like, wow. Yeah. This is a guy's he's the first police chief in Seattle to march in the gay pride parade, cause a stir yeah. and all that stuff. He whether you liked him or didn't like him, you knew where he stood. Yeah. But I think now, you know, you fast forward to today's world and even back then, because when you know, once when the DOJ started doing these consent decrees against these agencies. Uh, very few even want to fight them. They just roll over right away and do whatever. And obviously in the mm-hmm. politics we see today, it's, it's, well, that's, it's rampant. Yeah, and So it's, it's refreshing to hear that at least in some period of time, somebody would stand up to yeah. a radical group and say, you know what, we're not bad people and we can, we and, can demonstrate that. And it was, it was good and it was bad because I'm now going to say, in hindsight, one of the mistakes I made is we rested on the laurels with that a little too much. We thought we were so far ahead of the curve, yeah, it yeah, would take a while for them to see. catch up. And then things passed us by and we, and we, we, didn't, and we didn't read the tea leaves. We didn't keep sure. our fingers on the pulse of where the vulnerabilities were, sure. where, where we were starting to make mistakes. And we, and we could have improved or, or at least... Um, continued our um, trend of trying to be ahead of the curve. Um, And that's a risk. When you win, you start to sit there and think, oh, that's my winning formula. I'm going to keep doing that. And and the reason we won was because actually we're innovative and we we were doing things differently than other people. Yeah. So so you you get through all that. I can see it's a high. You keep around. I know you're in and out of K-9. You round out your career. then in, in the meantime, you're doing a lot of other training. You're involved with, I know, Washington State Canine mm-hmm. Association. Uh, I think you've been different parts of the world. So I mean, you, you, you've just like me. You've this this job has given you a ton of opportunities to go yeah. and do places. Yeah. So talk about I'm, some of those things that you've done. I'm I'm really grateful because, and I will say that it's not all just strictly the job that's done it. Uh, because when I wasn't assigned to canine, I always kept my hand in it. So yeah, I had an yeah. Uh, I had an animal behavior consultancy, uh, multi-species. We didn't because the principles apply across sure. species lines. Uh, that's where I met my wife. We cross-referred clients to each other, and um, and I would get speaking engagements from the civilian community that would take me to places like China and Australia. Yeah. But every time I'd go to one of those places, I would try to make a connection with the local police canine. Sure. Because I'll tell you one thing about this. If you tell them that you're canine, I don't care where you go in the world, you show up at another canine shop, you show up at their kennels, you show up at their office, and you say, I'm a canine handler from here, I want to talk to your canine handler, there is an instant welcome mat. I've seen the same thing. And, um, you know, so, um, you know, getting the chance to go to China and Japan and Australia to do those things, you know, throughout Canada, but also, you know, Finland, uh, you know, and... Into, into Europe and working at um, in doing a conference in in Brussels in Belgium yeah. actually in Belgium actually not just not just Brussels but I, I found that that was it was really good because I'm working with a community that was positive positive reinforcement trainers and it made me rethink the way to solve problems I sure. realized that most of the things that the police canine community considers problems are not problems they are instead symptoms. Yeah, fair and that the thing that you're dealing with, you're busy trying to suppress the symptom. And if you just fix the root problem, the symptom takes care of itself. It goes away. Yep, that's a good way to describe it. And, um, you know, and I work with conservation groups. So I go to Africa. I've been to Africa a few times working with um, uh, conferences set up by Save the Rhinos and working, you know, with the group at, at Kruger National Park, which has the most amazing um, poacher tracking program I've ever seen. Wow. It's just yeah. so out, so outside the box. 
packs of dogs working off lead by themselves, monitored by somebody in a helicopter. Wow. With GPS wow. trackers working off lead, doing 40 kilometer tracks in less than two hours. Wow. It's just crazy. Yeah. Just, uh, it's amazing work. Um, yeah. And I think what's awesome about having the opportunities I've had quite a few too in Europe and stuff, it's just cool to see that. I mean, I think what we do in the U.S. with police dogs, I think we do it really well overall. But there's a big, big world out there, and there's so many. There's other ways to do things, and there's other ways to utilize our dogs. And that's the thing, you know. I, I, I look. I've I've had to qualify as an expert witness for court in, you know, municipal court, state court, federal court. But I don't consider myself an expert. Yeah, I consider, I, you know, like, I, you know, okay, yes, I'm going to have to use that title. But I prefer to think of myself as a student. Yep. That every every new dog teaches me something. Every place I go someplace and I see another person trying to skin the same cat, solve the same problems, and I see different solutions, I go, wow. Yeah. And and it what it has forced me to do is rethink what's possible. Sure. No longer, you know, doing it and 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 working with limitations based on what I've seen around me, all of a sudden, all of a sudden I see people doing things that I can't do. Yeah. And then I'll look at it and I say, wow, but there are these other things that we do and we don't even think about that they go, oh, we could never do that. Yeah, yeah. And it's like the self-limiting beliefs a culture imposes upon its members is incredible. And let's jump in on that and i because i i know what you're saying but what what i'm hearing is you know like when we, we we're lucky that we you and i and people that you know get to travel like this even this week it's pretty clear when we're doing scenarios there's training groups and we know people that that uh train with each other and that might be a training group they some a lot of times that training group might have the same positives or the same weaknesses in the group and mm-hmm. as i kind of were saying they kind of limit themselves like this is how our dogs work and don't don't really see the whole world that there's easier ways to do things or dogs are capable of doing something you know i think um the general classific you know the general type of limitations that we impose upon ourselves are universal across the board we're always sure we're always creating these self-limiting beliefs or, or these beliefs about dogs that limit what we think they're capable of. Sure. And which is, a, which is an irony because most police administrators think that just because a dog goes through a couple of weeks of school or a handler and a dog yeah. go through a couple of weeks of school, they there come out and they yeah. are ready yeah. to be the high-speed, yeah. low-drag, uber-tactical team that is going to go secret ninja into everywhere yeah. and do everything. And sorry, no, you don't just get that out of nowhere. Yeah. And it's sorry. Just because you grew up knowing that Lassie could tell you that little Timmy's in the well at the old Johnson place doesn't mean that dogs actually do that. (laughs) Exactly. And um, so is there some examples from this week of of some things where you think people um, could, you know, give me some ideas of of some of the stuff you saw this week. Talk about your scenarios and some of the So I I think a classic example you'll see it um, that has – Plagued law enforcement canine around a whole variety of places are dogs that are too vocal. Sure. And a lot of that, you know, they're, they're, I believe in the interplay between genetics and environment and upbringing. Those yeah. three factors, you know, whether it's nature or nurture, create the individual. And so there may be some genetics that are more, you know, prone to being quiet dogs when you need them to be quiet and others that are going to be noisy. But I believe that the reinforcement contingencies in place when dogs are trained put dogs in a state of arousal that's going to make a lot of them very noisy. Yeah. And um, so watching these dogs today, I can tell you, I can see watching handlers trying to give a warning at a building and their voices drowned out by their dog is something that multiple times this week. Yes. We multiple times this week, you'd see it. They lied. They kneel at yep. the door. They have their dog there sitting by them. They would hold tight on the collar and they would start to give their warning and the dog would drown them out. 
And I said, okay, let's try an experiment. Just humor me. Yeah. I know. I'm, the, I'm this weird guy from Seattle you've never seen before. Don't worry about it. Put your dog on it down. Now just stand there and do me a favor. I don't want any tension on the lead. Just get a little J in that lead, just a little yep. slack. Yep. Now stand there in a normal conversational tone. Give your warning. We can ramp it up later on, but just now let's just see what happens. And they would do that, and they were looking at me like, you must Yeah, it's you, not going to work. <laughs> you know, you're, you're an old man, right? Your dementia's yeah. getting a hold of you, right? And I go, you just try it. Yeah. Just try it. And lo and behold, most of the dogs would get all the way through the warning without breaking. Yep. And I say, now you're going to pay your dog for being quiet by letting him go to do his search. Yeah. And I literally had twice, twice this week, in the middle of his warning, like he's just near the end of it, he's, they stop and they look at me like, is this for this real? Works, yeah. Is this for real? They're like, they can't yeah. believe that they're not having to fight with yeah. their dog about this. Yeah. They cut the dog loose, they search there and there. Now, is the work done? No, but we've shown them. There are things that they don't realize it's, that happening. That yep. behavior is controlled by antecedents and consequences. The ABCs. If your antecedents are murky, or your consequences are murky, the behavior will be murky. You clean up your antecedents, you clean up your consequences, the behavior cleans up. Sure. And so these people don't realize the power of the antecedents that they have. Going to a door, stopping at the door, back tension. By the way, why does back tension on that harness, holding them tight so they don't go into the room, why does that ramp up the dog's arousal? Well, if you think of the way dogs are trained from the to do aggression work exactly. from the beginning, yeah. we we put something in, exciting in front of them they want, and then we use restraint, physical restraint to hold them back, build frustration, build quote-unquote drive, yes. whatever you want to call it, and then woof, we let the dogs go have the fun. Yep. And... That classical conditioning happens. After enough times that being happened, they get a conditioned emotional response to a, an arousing, you know, this thing they want in front of them and back pressure equals spin up and get ready because that's when they're going to let you go is when you're really spun up. Yep. And I used, I actually used that to some of their advantage because I've seen the same thing. So I did a scenario where I turned all the showers on. My decoy was not under a shower. Um, but he was at the far back of a shower and I had a bunch of cold water on a slick floor and a lot, decent amount of noise from it. So it was a lot of environmental things going on. Some of the dogs simply didn't want to go in the opening to get to the shower. And I just showed the handlers, just leash him up and use that to our advantage. Mm-hmm. Put a little pressure on him as the dog starts to counter. Let him just pull the leash right out of your hand and he'll forget about all that's bothering him and mm-hmm. we'll use that drive. So um, I think sometimes... You know, it's what it's creating the confusion, but they forget that it can be also a pretty positive you, you, tool for them when they need it. That only works if you're aware it's there. These yeah. these handlers are completely unaware of the impact yeah. of those antecedents sure. that that stuff on there. You know, that's a wise use of it when you're trying to get a dog to overcome his anxiety about this. You're trying to harness the Yerkes Yerkes Dotson curve. So are you familiar with the Yerkes Dotson curve? No. So imagine you have, I'm going to try and paint a picture for the listeners because this is an auditory podcast. But on the vertical axis, you have learning. And on the horizontal axis, you have arousal or excitement. And it's a bell-shaped curve. And it goes up, reaches a peak, and goes back down. For learning to occur or performance, I would Uh argue, what you want is enough arousal that the animal is invested and excited and wants to do it. Yeah. But if you go past the peak of the curve and you get into over-arousal, then performance starts to degrade. And if you get even higher levels of arousal, then performance and learning drop precipitously. Okay. So the idea about the Yerkes-Dodson curve is finding that sweet spot of where there's the sure. optimum level of arousal for the learning to occur, for the yeah. animal to be invested in the process and yet still be, you know, the forebrain to be active enough that it's actually absorbing the information. With time, and if you practice and you operate in the sweet spot a lot, and then you kind of nudge the edges out, work the dog when it's a little lower arousal, and then all of a sudden it finds out, wow, I can still get paid on this, and then push it a little harder where there's more stimulation, more arousal, you can expand, actually expand the individual sweet spot. Uh-huh. 
And that's that should be our goal as trainers. Yeah. Um, there's an there's an author by the name of Dr. Robert Glover who wrote a book called No Mr. Nice, no More Mr. Nice Guy. He doesn't have this this chart published anywhere else. But if you talk to him, he talks he gives you this vertical chart that is essentially a vertical version of the Yerkes Dotson curve. And he says, "We live our lives in the comfort zone. This is where you eat junk food, you watch junk TV, you just don't push yourself, yeah. you know, just bleh. Then up way up above that, there's a there's a gap in the middle. Way up above that is the stress zone. That's where we start falling apart because we have stress. You know, we start living on antacids. Yeah. We have strokes. Yeah. You know, and all of that stuff happens. In between those two is what he calls the stretch zone. The stretch zone is where you are out of your comfort zone, but you it's still doable. And I think the the model you want is to live in the stress in the stretch zone a lot. Go back down, get some comfort in the comfort zone, then go back and work a little higher in the stretch zone until you start dancing with the edge of the stress zone. Dance into that, just touch the edge of the stress zone and then get back into the stretch zone where you're a little more comfortable. Push a little deeper in the stress zone. So you start, what what you'll see is the animal's capacity, whether it's the human animal or the four-legged sure. one at the end of the leash, their capacity to operate under stressful conditions will expand. And now I think it's, and we talked a little bit about one of the things we saw this week is, you know, we're putting the handlers under some stress because it's new scenarios mm -hmm. and it's it's not with their usual trainers. So there's some strange yeah. strange people in here telling them here's here's it. And, and some of the scenarios are pretty straightforward and some are, are you know, almost, you know, not, everyone is always winnable. We don't do any lose scenarios, right. but we're putting some stress on them. So then you see some, it, I think it exacerbates the conflict that would normally be there that through, you know, the training and stuff. So mm -hmm. I think when you're talking about stretching that, if they're not aware of all these principles, then that starts relating. That's usually that's going to develop the conflict that we, that we see. Yeah. And that's part of the beauty of a conference like this. I'm going to give full credit to Western States Police Canine Association um, you know, I'm pretty proud of what the, the, the other WSPCA, yes. <laughs> which is the Washington State Police Canine yeah. Association, puts on two seminars a year, and they're pretty darn good. Yep, they are I've very much like yep. this in many, many ways. Trainers are committed to this. Um, I will say that you don't have the years of experience in their trainer pool that you have, but you have a few people with enough experience that they really do a good job. Yeah, but do. the culture that it has created is what I really love. Yeah. The Washington State Police Canine Association has developed a culture where um, they value training and they believe that really there's no such thing as a dog handler. You may have that title because that's what you get paid at and that's what maybe a law will call you. But from the dog's perspective, you're either a trainer or you're a trainee. Yeah. Because anytime you're with your dog, one of you train in the other. Yeah, and if you aren't making the decision at every moment to be the trainer, then by default, you're the trainee because yeah. the dog has it way yeah. easier to do. They just got to figure out how do I make this hairy yeah. monkey say good and give me stuff. Yeah. So, and going back to, it was some, I think we talked, I think it's an easy way to kind of focus in on. We're talking about the stress that some of the dogs have. A lot of times it manifests it's with the dog barking and stuff. Um, so you, I know you mentioned one of the things, just let the dog be quiet for a minute. What are some other, you know, just on that one simple thing, because that's a real common problem I saw this week where, and, and I think we're, you and I, we didn't discuss this, but I think, I assume we're on the same page. I don't like dogs barking while I'm making announcements. It's no. So, and I think, and not just, I don't like it, not just because you can't hear the damn announcements. I just don't like how it spins the dog up. I don't think the dog is ready to work then. I think some of these dogs, they're so spun up during those announcements they are useless for the first whatever 10 15 20 feet they can't search their their mind is in condition black until they get whatever distance and then they actually start to work so i just think it's better to have the dog 100% agreement and i believe they're uh, i have this debate in the civilian dog training community they don't um, they don't like the term impulse control for a while impulse control was in vogue yeah. and now there's a move in the positive training movement it no that impulse control implies that it's forced on the dog and isn't that i actually think you can train impulse and control into a dog by letting him learn that actually if it resists that initial urge to go after something 
that it's actually going to get something better. If you set, if you arrange your contingencies properly, yes. if you set the dog up to th- he thinks he's going to get a level five fun time, but actually you show him that if you wait, you get a level seven. Yeah. All of a sudden the dog starts going, Oh, this is in my best interest to control my things. You know, one of the problems we have in our society is we've lost the capacity for delayed gratification and a whole variety of things that actually made our culture really great in this country. We now got people who have no sense of delayed gratification, who aren't willing to put in the time they expect to get out of college and right away be making six yeah. figures and things like that. When actually, you no, know, st- starter jobs were starter jobs for a reason. Yes. And then, you know, new positions. Yeah are where you develop skills and show employers that actually you show up on time. You, yeah. you do your duties and things like that. We need to go ahead and realize that we have to, we have dogs that they can't understand those abstract constructs, but they can understand the contingencies that we put in place for them. And if we're consistent enough that they start to believe, well, you know what? My personal hairless primate actually understands that if i do this he's gonna he's gonna make sure i get paid i get paid well i'm gonna pay attention to him you have to you know people think discipline is making a dog do something discipline that dog well that's what is the root word of discipline disciple yeah a follower yeah you've got to make yourself worth following if you expect that dog, you have to be the to benevolent follow. king, not just you, the yeah, the hard you, king, yes. and and not even not even the king, just somebody worth yeah. following. And I and I, I like where you, what you're what you're talking about because I think you and I both saw it that there was a few examples of people trying to either um, use some type of compulsion to shut the dog up, and I've not seen that work when you get the dog that spun up. So I like, you know, that you're basically letting the dog kind of self-discover, clear my head, now I get to move forward. Pretty simple, you know, when, when people see it, it's unfortunate that there's still places around where these handlers, and I don't blame these handlers, there's a lot of young handlers here no. who are doing exactly how they're taught, and it was basically trying to take this beautiful, you know, I've seen some nice dogs here. That really nice the, dogs. The, the drives I want. And instead of just letting the dog clear his head for a half a second and then showing him how to do things, which is real simple when they see it, instead they're being told, give the dog some type of correction and sometimes not a correction I would ever really use. Mm -hmm. And all that does is create that conflict. Now the dog Mm -hmm. barks more, the relationship, and then you start getting behaviors even unrelated to what we're talking about, barking announcements. Now I've got a dog that doesn't want to release anymore because the whole relationship is now messed up over just this compulsion where it never needed to happen to begin with. Well, um, you know, there's a term called the punishment callus, that the more you apply punishment, the more you apply suppressive tactics, the more you have to apply them because the animal yes. becomes inured to it. It's a, you know, eventually it says, well, you know, I still want this thing. I just, I'm just going to have to push through the pain to get there. Yep. And um, I believe it's a very real phenomenon. And the, the sad part is um, punishment by definition is reinforcing to the punisher, to the person who pushes the button, yanks the leash, throws the throw chain, rolls up the newspaper, because it briefly gives you relief from the annoying thing the dog is doing. You get this momentary satisfaction, but you haven't taught the dog what to do. You just taught the dog that it's not safe to do it in your presence. Yes. And and that is getting across to people that that's what this dog... I say, I, here's another thing that broke my heart. Really nice dogs, really nice dogs, and really nice people who, because as you described, don't know any better. I watched them call their dogs, and their dogs would come to them, and then when they were within arm's reach... They would curve away. They would stop. They yeah. would, they, in other words, they knew that if they got within arm's reach, the fun's right. going to stop. Yeah. You're going to make yeah. me do I don't want to do yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think there's probably, uh, I don't know how many, I think they have 100 teams here. And, and overall, um, I didn't see too many, I didn't see anything terribly bad, but I saw kind of a trend of what we're talking about, of, of 
just some conflict, which I, we see everywhere. I, yeah. I, there's oh, not yeah. A, I've, not I've never gone thing. anywhere where I haven't seen it. When I do my e-collar classes, usually I see the first day a lot of conflict. And one of the neat things that I always tell people, and I'm sure you've seen this too, that when I'm doing my e-collar classes is I start with you know, just doing some healing exercises with a couple decoys on the field, which that alone sometimes will, will get a little hairy because dogs get so overloaded. But even the dogs, if they're pulling on the leash or whatever, I always tell everybody, as you're walking, just reach down, take the leash off him. And I have all the other handlers watch, and I, I've yet seen a dog that doesn't get a nicer, cleaner walk as soon as they feel that leash come off. Mm-hmm. They usually break. They usually just get more comfortable mm-hmm. because of all the information we're sending down mm-hmm. leash. And I think, you know, going back to the same example I keep using, the, the barking and announcements, you know, putting the dog in a down, either taking them off leash or getting them some slack in the leash, it's amazing how well that fixes it. You know, it's something mm-hmm. as simple as that, as opposed to, you know, what, and again, it's just, it's unfortunate that there's still places around where you're going to try and do some type of compulsion when a lot of this, I'm not one of the guys who I, I don't do all positive training. I think there's a time mm-hmm. and a place for compulsion. I have no problem with it. I just think that some of these, uh, it's creating a lot of, um, confusion and stress where, well, where it's an easier fix on, on some of these things. I mean, I'll, I'll put it this way. Um, I've never witnessed you do your e-collar training. And, and I start my training with a clicker. And I actually, because I'm in law enforcement, I don't use a physical clicker. I use a tongue clock. Yeah. And it just works for me because that's that's one of the things I found is a, is a very quick way sure. for me to shape behaviors and get animals deeply sure. committed, engaged, and really enjoying the process. And I would do it because, or I would say that as I'm doing this, I may get some satisfaction out of watching the dog do this but i'm doing it with actually very little emotion in the process because i'm really trying to focus on the behavior and my timing of my marker and my delivery of the consequences and my you know and my establishing the antecedents it's very focused and i think anybody that's going to going to use aversives you've got to take your emotion out of it yes if you're going to, you know, punishment is a dish best served cold. It is something that, and I think that was one of the things that got me is you, you, this is a corny joke. All right. What sure. sound does a cow make? Um, I don't know. Moo, right? Yeah. <laughs> What's the name of a Hawaiian dress? Uh, moo moo. Very good. If you say it twice, it doesn't mean the same thing. Yeah. So you have a lot of people sure. that not only say moo moo, but they go moo moo. Yeah. Yeah. And they do that. Uh, they make an imperative out of that second one. Oh, and that's when the dog goes, oh, you might mean it. And maybe it takes a third, which is pretty, you know, preceded with the. So there's the command of execution. And there's a preparatory command. The preparatory command is, damn it, I said. Yeah. And the execution is moo. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. And so you got to realize that. Um, they're doing this because they're frustrated. They're in front of somebody they've never seen before. Before they're and they might be embarrassed about their dog's performance, and that amplifies their arousal, which creates a feedback loop between them and the dog. Because they know that these dogs have been around human beings long enough, and maybe this particular human being long enough to know human beings in an aroused state don't always play fair and play nice. Yes, and. Um, that's a hard thing to teach people is to actually to have impulse control on their own emotions, not just to teach it to oh, the yeah. dog, but to have impulse control yeah. on their own and just yeah. deal with the behavior yeah. in front of you. Don't lose, yeah. don't lose your cool. And I think that's why I, I like to talk about this is that the, uh, it frustrates me again. I've, I've done this for a while also, you know, there's, there's a lot of dogs. There's a bunch of dogs here. I would put in the back of my car all day long and work Yep, and a lot of, really really good handlers that are you know committed i mean we're, we've been out we'll be out there you know at the end of the day and we still have a line of some people who want to mm-hmm. do the scenario and it's just a just uh, you know what's what's cool is that at least they have the opportunity to come here see some different things so for people who are listening you know if you only train with your one training group i think it, it comes full circle to what you had mentioned earlier that at one point because seattle kicked the aclu's butt you started thinking we're the best and we don't, you know, we don't mm-hmm. need to change. We still see that with a small training group or even a larger training group that 
that become very insular and don't go out. They don't go to places, you know, like, like mm-hmm. our hit seminar or some this place or Washington State. They go somewhere. They need, People need to make sure that they're getting outside their box, meeting other trainers, seeing what things are going on, and always expanding that horizon and, and pushing the envelope like you were talking about earlier. Well, just as cross-pollination in the plant world you know, creates the genetic diversity that allows evolution to occur, we need to cross-pollinate. Exactly. We really need to get out there and see how other people solve this problem, see some them wrestling with the same problems we are, and both of us scratching our heads like, how do we solve this? But and that doesn't mean... That doesn't mean you go out and try every new thing you see. No. You bring the tools in and you get comfortable with them. And um, like, like I know that, for example, when we Seattle, we had a breeding program. And um, we had a dam for the breeding program, uh, a, a really fun little black German shepherd by the name of Ayla. She was my test platform for everything new. So I, because she wasn't working the street, yeah. she was there for the breeding program. I didn't have to worry about operational issues, so I could try new stuff. Yeah. And I'd try new stuff, and then I'd show it to the handlers. What do you think of this? I think we should do it. She was the first dog I ever did spray tracking with. Yeah. And she, we stumbled on it by accident, and then it just took off from there. And then she was the first dog I ever did later laser guidance with. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I went, wow, this could be fun. Yeah. And um, some of that stuff is really cool. It's high-speed, low-drag but you don't need it. It's really yeah. about the foundation and the fundamentals. And she was the one that taught me that really a good police dog only needs four behaviors, four of your basic obedience behaviors. That dog needs a recall. Yes. That, that when you say, come man, it thinks the best thing in the world is about to happen when it gets to you. That dog needs to have a stationary behavior of some sort, a sit or a down that means whatever happens, you don't move. I like down for yep. that for the most part. They got to be able to walk with you without pulling your shoulder out of your arm, and ideally with focus on you. It's with a, with awareness of its environment. You got to have that bend. I don't think you need to have the competition heel where the dog is uh, artificially craning its neck and, and yeah, straining up at you in a way that, that. that it's impossible. That is impossible to maintain over duration. And I want my dog to be aware of the environment around it, but really aware of where I am and focused on me. Um, those three things alone probably will get most dogs through almost everything they need to do if you if you want to. If if down means down, wherever you are, whatever's going on, however far away from me you are, no matter what's happening yeah. around you, there's a lot you can keep a dog out of trouble with. with oh, yeah. yeah. And recall's the same way. And I teach the release as a behavior. I, you know, rather than out means I'm going to make you stop doing this, Release means you get a better game. You've been playing a game. If you let go, the game gets better. Yeah. Next level. This is like like a like the best video game they've ever played. Where every time they release, the game gets better and better and yeah. better and better. And all of a sudden, now you're not fighting with them to release. So if the time comes that you need to put on emergency brakes, like an e-collar or something like that, you rarely need it. And when you do, it is more as just a cue carrier to say. Hey, remember the game? Yeah, just a way to communicate. Yeah, to shape them. Yeah, that's good stuff. I mean, uh, I think. It, any other thoughts from like what we saw this week? I know we've we've done. Um, well, I'm gonna say with all of those things, we've been focusing on on negatives and things that sure. bother me. I'm gonna say that I was really excited that the majority of handlers who came through this thing were open minded. Yes, very and much. were they were not just open minded; they wanted principles they didn't just want a method yeah, yeah yeah a method was really nice but they wanted to understand the principles why does this work yeah like so the exercises we designed were built on what uh seattle calls the tactical concepts models that that everything you do as you're moving through a tactical problem searching a building is a tactical problem you have space you need to move through and and take control of while you're looking for yeah. somebody yeah and in moving through space, the four tools that you have at your disposal, not the ones that are on your belt, but that are inherent to the activity, are time, distance, angles, and shielding. And that everything you move, every tactical decision you made, you make, you should understand the trade-offs you're making. Sure. In in you know, in other words, if I go from here to there, I'm giving up shielding. Yeah. 
And so I better leverage angles in my favor when I do it. So you don't walk down the middle of a hall, you walk across and go up, you know, things like that. There's a variety of ways in which we do this, but a lot of times when we get the dog in front of us, we forget all that stuff. Yes. Because you know what? Dog alerts are like the sun. They have their <laughs> own gravitational pull. They, when that dog is alerting, it is like everybody, every handler and every backup officer wants to go, oh, I've got to get there with the dog. Yeah. And all no, you got this uncovered space between here and there. You know what the only thing is that has more gravitational pull than the sun of a dog alert? What's that? The black hole of a dog, dog. bite. Yeah. Yes, and all of a sudden, dog's on bite, every, and now you're way over here. In. Yeah. Oh, boy. That will suck you into making but, bad tackle decisions or compromises, really risky compromises, to get there fast. But I tell you, at least in the scenarios I ran, I, what's cool, and, and when we set up these scenarios, we all kind of have ways what we want to do. This time we had a gigantic high school. They spread out trainers all over the place. We got to do different things. Without really discussing amongst the trainers at all, we just took a station. We came up with our own scenario, mm-hmm. and it's cool to see how similar they were. I knew a lot mm-hmm. of yours recall were were ones where they would be more successful by recalling the dog and and deciding the tactics before they just let the dog not chasing the dog. And I did a few things similar to that, and then I did one today where it it was I had a, a, a suspect run. It, you know, they did they should not chase the suspect in the building. Just stop. Let him, let him go through a door, figure out what you're going to do. And then when they did end up finding the suspect, I gave lots of areas of cover where they didn't need to go into a walk-in freezer and try and put hands on this. Right. What I saw today um, in just the third day we're here, I think was much better of an overall group than mm-hmm. what I would have seen Tuesday. So through a few repetitions of, of just showing mm-hmm. – you know some different tactics and you have so you have you know some some people with you know different tactics showing that this is possible to to not have to chase your dog and then you have a group of handlers who are good handlers that are like sponges and good dogs overall what a great week well i'm 100 percent in agreement uh seeing the progress being made and seeing guys actually catch themselves yeah and, and pull themselves back from their old habits was really gratifying. Yeah. Uh, I got the I got the blessing of working with a trainer I'd never worked before. So we tag team on a site, um, Billy Holbert yep. from Texas. And the nice thing is we came into this with kind of different ideas, but we were able to uh, kind of take the complementary elements of our approaches yep. and create an exercise that satisfied both of us in saying, I got a learning piece here yeah. that is being accomplished. Yeah. And to see people come, and so we had people come on day one, day two, day three, and we built this, the first day was simple, a very simple exercise, but the people said, wow, but the concepts yeah. were big. And then the next day, we gave them a bit more complexity. Yeah. And then today, we added another layer of complexity onto it. And watching them make decisions based on time, distance, angles, and shielding, and actually articulate out loud, talking, communicating with their cover officers, us, that uh, I I don't want to give up this cover here for a moment. Let's see if we can call this person out. Or let's see if there's a way we can move around another way that we get a better angle on this. I'm like, oh, this is it. You're thinking about the trade-offs, and that's all you can ask because – if we ever face a challenge, if somebody says, you know, because things don't always work out the way you want, but if you can show that you were considering the options yeah. and that, you know, and the other mantra that we had with this, look, canine, canine searches, canine tracks are de facto tactical operations. We not, may not be SWAT, but we should borrow from them. Exactly. I, I remember the days when SWAT, everything was fast and dynamic and yeah. all that yep. crash and burn, yeah. you know, battering rams yeah. left and right all, all the time and running and, yeah. and all that. Now the tactical world understands the value of going yeah. slow and deliberate. Yep. And, time. and so I said, look, de-escalation, no matter what how little bit of throw up that makes you feel in your <laughs> mouth at the moment when you say it, you got to realize de-escalation is what good cops have been doing for, for the longest time, which is... When things are getting out of hand, 
slow things down exactly. and try and generate compliance. Yep. You know, slow it down and try and generate compliance. And if you go through every tactical operation, every search with that in mind, your goal is to manage the time, distance, angles, and shielding, be aware of what trade-offs you're making, and go slow and try and generate compliance, you're you're always going to be in a better place than if and, you're just flying by the seat. And of your you're pants. still in control. You're yeah. not starting to to let you know the the guy who just ran from you. He's Ab- not dictating how this absolutely. Is go. So I, and and I, you're I, not as if there aren't bad guys who will throw the bait out as a way exactly. to get you to start exactly. making bad decisions. Exactly. Well, I mean, this has been really good stuff. It's been a fun week. Uh, we got one more day tomorrow. If the people that are listening to this, you know, we've been talking a little bit about this, but. If they get nothing else, I, I hope when if you're listening to this, I hope you kind of look at your own training group and maybe you know go and, and drive to the next county over, hang out with their training group one night and do some scenarios with them. You know, I, mm-hmm. at when uh, at one time we had a, a very friendly rivalry with the with uh, uh, the next agency over from us, mm-hmm. and we'd set up crazy scenarios for each other. Nobody ever got mad. We just had a whole lot of fun coming up with crazy scenarios but we learned from it so if you're listening to this you know please you know reach out do something find another seminar to go to find uh, another training group at least to go to once in a while and just expand your horizons because we can all learn something you know you and i are lucky because we get to travel around and i've learned something this week i know i'm sure you have too. yeah absolutely i i you know we don't get paid to come here and teach at these things this is this is something that's uh that that we do as a commitment to the canine community sure. and but i will admit there is a mercenary piece in me in this and that is every time i go I come away with a piece of knowledge Absolutely. I didn't have before. Absolutely. I, I get to add to my toolkit, and it is such a blessing. It is such I a blessing to work with a group of trainers who are similarly committed to principles that yeah. all of a sudden I go, wow, I never thought of solving that that way. Yeah. That's awesome. Yep. And I had a couple of moments like that Absolutely. this week. Yep, and, and I'm sure we both, we, I've learned from handlers who have the, their dog for three and four months, even if I'm learning just by trying to help them solve something. Yeah. It's a new tool in the toolbox. So it's, mm-hmm. it's a, I, I feel blessed to, you know, in addition to the cross pollination, um, I would like to just ask everybody that we're, that's listening right now, everybody that's part of your podcast to realize, as I said, anytime you're with your dog, one of you's training the other, yeah. always harness those moments and, Give yourself credit for it in your training logs. You're doing training on your own. You train. It's training. Exactly. Yeah. And 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 that's where the real work gets done. When you have that group training day, that's where you kind of proof things. You try new stuff and all that stuff yeah. that and to see if the new stuff you've been doing is working or how you can yeah. start to integrate it into the tactical toolkit. But really. The work is done minute by minute. You That's dogs learn better, point. getting a lot, a little bit all the time, rather than yeah. an eight-hour chunk yeah. every other weekend. That's a good point. Well, I think we're gonna probably wrap this up for our, our kind of wrap up of, of, of our week here. But you also taught a couple classes here, so I think maybe when we both get back home, if it's all right with you, I'm gonna get you on the phone. We're gonna talk about some of these classes you taught because a lot of it is kind of de- dealing with kind of the environment that policing is right now right and maybe some ways i just uh, i just did a podcast this week with uh, bill lewis we kind of talked about some ways that's to kind of that uh, dude's dialed in yep and he and he just threw out a few easy suggestions as to how to start thinking about how to protecting your canine unit i read from your class description we taught at the same time so i didn't get to go to, to your yeah. class but i saw in your class description a lot of really good stuff about you know maybe you know, rethinking about how we describe it from what I understand, Graham versus Connor and how that could almost be used against, against us. us. Mm-hmm. Those are some great concepts. And, um, you know, uh, and I always say, I've been talking a lot about on my podcast recently, you know, I, I, the sky's not falling, but I kind of want to be undercover right, or under something in case it does where, cause we are under attack, you know, mm-hmm. our, our, our whole industry's under attack as, as police officers. Well, this is a canine audience. Yes. And you need and, and, and canine handlers need to realize we're not just under attack, but canine is now literally the fulcrum. And when we do this, when we do the changes coming yeah. conversation, because change is coming, folks, yes. whether we like it or not. Cities like Seattle are the canary in the coal mine. Cities yeah. where we've had things like that happen. So you need to realize that 
uh, canine is now the fulcrum from by which the anti-police activists will apply leverage against the entire law enforcement community. Yep. So we have an obligation, not just to the police canine community, but to law enforcement as a whole, each one of us as an individual to go, I'm not going to be that cop yeah. that creates the bad case law that, that everybody else has everything. to live with. Yep. And I will exercise restraint. I will try to be judicious. Yep. I will do everything in my power yeah. to slow things down and generate compliance. Yep. So with that, I think, uh, like I said, uh, we'll be we'll get you back on here in the next uh, few weeks, and we'll go a little bit deeper into the woods on that if if you can uh, if you have time for that. You bet. We'll do it. So, Steve, I appreciate taking the time. Uh, it's been a busy week, and now we're sitting here because we're both dog geeks. We're sitting here at nine o'clock. Instead of at a casino where we could be downstairs having a beer and having fun or something, watching sitting, a game, yeah, sitting here in a hotel room talking dog stuff, and I wouldn't want to be anywhere else actually, because we're both kind of dog geeks. So yep, I appreciate this, and uh, we'll be getting you back on here real soon. It's been a pleasure. It's been an honor. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you, Jeff. Steve. All right.